Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you wanna make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome back to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by Bloody FM, the number one horror podcast network out there. And thank you to Charlie Lawrence and the most for our always catchy theme song, The Friends Song. I'm your host, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman, and uh, today we are celebrating not 10, not 20, but 30 years of what I consider to be one of the more underrated. Stephen King adaptations. I'm not talking about Maximum Overdrive. No, 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 no Cujo. Uh, definitely not The Dead Zone and certainly not Christine. I'm, I'm talking about Frasier C. Heston's Castle Rock classic in many ways. Needful things. And today, to celebrate, we thought, well, we already did the movie. We've already talked about the book. Why don't we unlock our interview with Fraser C. Heston. I, we, 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 we talked to him. We talked to the filmmaker a couple years ago, and it's been locked away in the Barrens. And so if you're thinking right now, wait, I've never heard this. It's because you haven't joined the Barrens, so I'm going to absolutely shame you right now. The Barrens, <laughs> www.patreon.com slash the Barrens. And those who have heard it, well, guess what? We're gathering around right now to talk about the movie just for a little bit, you know, just to kind of kick it around. Because I said it was underrated. And I'm going to explain why in just a second. But before I do that, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty stoked right now because I'm I'm back here in Castle Rock. I don't see Jackie Torrance anywhere, but who do I see coming up the road? It's definitely not Larry Underwood. He's holding a six string. Say hello. Hey, it's Rock and Randall. I feel like you forgot the biggest reason we're talking about Evil Things, which is that it got a 4K release, right? It did get a 4K release, and look, uh, thank you for reminding me. We are sponsored by Kino Lorber, uh, <laughs> who just put out a wonderful two-disc edition of Needful Things, uh, which has the 191-minute television cut of the film. So if you want to see an, a drastically different cut of the movie... Which we talk about in our episode. We did talk about it in our episode. It's, it's drastically different, and in that weekend, I did watch both cuts, which is a wild weekend. Is that uh, the one when the dwarf wins? It's end? it's not the one oh. where the dwarf wins. Well, you know, hopefully the dwarf comes back in Beetlejuice too. Uh, I was gonna say the priest from Beetlejuice. The priest from Beetlejuice to <laughs> come in. But who's this voice right now? You said Rock and Randall. So yeah, it's Rock and Randall. Okay. Do you consider this one an ad, uh, underrated? Adaptation? I do. I, I'm a huge fan of Needful Things in general. I'm a huge proponent of the book. It's honestly one of my favorites. Uh, that was one of my favorite episodes that we got to do. Yeah. Um, I believe it was maybe the last one we did before the pandemic. It was the uh, last so I have book fond episode. Memories. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have fond memories of being in person with with all of you. And then, uh, and then, yeah, the movie, I remember watching it with you and us doing Ed Harris impressions the whole time. And it was oh, really yeah. fun. It's, I, I, you know, the movie, it can't really touch the book, but because the book is so sprawling and there's so, the ensemble nature of it is, I think, part of what makes it so special. But I mean... It really, 
goes for it. Yeah. And it really does honor, I think, a lot of the most important arcs, even even if it excises Ace Merrill. But um, a lot of really good performances and just the general, I feel like the tone is kind of perfect. Um, like there's enough humor in it and there's enough twisted sort of gleefully evil uh, cackling in it. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a fun, I'm, I'm a huge like uh, proponent of, of this Stephen King property in particular. Well, on the other end of this opinion, is the the hater of this movie? I'm just joking. I don't <laughs> actually. I don't know. I, I, I to be quite frank, I don't know. Uh, but coming from is it Nan's uh, Kitchenette? That's also in Castle Rock, isn't that one of luncheonette, the luncheonette? The yes. luncheonette, yes. Uh, coming out from the luncheonette, I believe you've got a pie for us to share here. This is amazing, Jen. Say hello and tell us uh, honestly. Tell us the first time you watched Needle Things because we we didn't get to share this in the episode. So go for it. Hey, this is Jen to the Rage Adams. And yeah, this was the last thing that y'all were doing before I joined the podcast, I think. Um, And I remember, you know, you and I had been talking on Twitter and I was like, I really want to get on this Needful Things episode. And then I realized (laughs) y'all had already recorded it. Um, But yeah, I love this book. I think I've read it probably five or six times. Um, I don't remember the first time I saw the movie, but I remember... This may have been the first movie that I have a memory of waiting for it to come out after I had become a Stephen King fan. Oh, interesting. You know? Okay. Yeah. So I like I knew what it was and I knew to be excited about it based on that name. Um, and I just remember like the trailer is awesome. And yeah. I remember watching the trailer with um what is it, In the Hall of the Mountain King playing and you just see like Nettie rolling down the roof and everything and it's just it's so cool. And I think like this is what I think of when I think of Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. This is who I think of when I think of uh, Alan Pangborn. And so I think this really kind of set the tone for a lot of the iconic Stephen King people and places in my mind, you know? Sam, I mean, for me, this is so, this has kind of everything in one for me. I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily my favorite Stephen King adaptation. I said underrated for a reason. I think it's because like the book, I think it's in that weird middle ground where I, I, I just have so much love for it. But then I also, when I think about it too much, I'm like, oh, yeah, there are some things that don't necessarily work altogether. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think whereas some things are are, are refined and smoothed out in the movie, uh, you know, as they are in the book, that I think there are some things that I do love in the book that are missing from the movie. So it's kind of this like weird catch 22 thing. Having said that. You're right. I, I, this is what I think of when I think of Castle Rock. Sorry, Hulu, but I don't think of yeah. the, you know, I yeah. love, I love, you know, <laughs> the, the the first season of Castle Rock's Blast. We just had a watch along, um, you know, last month. But this looks kind of like what we talked about with Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery mm-hmm. in the last episode for Hollywood King is this looks like a Stephen King like novel. Like it, it really does. Like it, it has the, I mean, first off, you want to look for a, a movie that, God, I sound like such a fucking shill for this movie. It's like this movie's 30 <laughs> years old. It's Yeah, it's been out. But anyway, I if you want to look for a, a film that like gets you in the fall mood or gets you in that autumnal uh, flavor, you know, pumpkin spice lattes just hit the uh, Starbucks today. So That's this is right. a good pairing right now. You can in get honor the, of Needful Things. I think. Yeah, and on for, they were like, you know what? The Kino Lorber has this great 2K <laughs> or 4K release. Um, but it does, I, I love the vibe of this movie. And I, and I mm-hmm. think that kind of mirrors the sentiments I have of the book too, where you're, I just love being in the town. And yeah. not a lot of Stephen King adaptations really do capture the feeling of that town, that, that, that thing that he's so good at, the thing that really put him on the scene other than Carrie's. Like when he did Salem's Lot, you're like, oh, shit, this guy knows how to do a revolving town. And even to a lesser degree in Carrie, he does that, too. I mean, look at the ending of that book. Mm-hmm. So to have that quality come to light and to come to fruition, I think, I think that's a strength of this movie. 
but Ra- Randall, I mean, I know we love Ed Harris specifically <laughs> for his vitriolic performance, which has colored our needful th- tweets episodes for five <laughs> or six years from now. But is it, would you say that you're biased for the love of this movie because we're su- such big Harris heads or do you think he becomes Pangborn here? <laughs> I well yeah I mean I think he's great casting for it and I think he's he's hilarious and uh but he also can convey intense gravitas yeah um and I think he fits right into this world he's done a handful of king stuff like it's we got to get him on the pod someday to talk about it but but yeah um I love Harris and I think that he really does carry this movie in a lot of ways although I think the whole cast is not the whole cast but the majority of the cast is really strong and um, the only problem really is the ending, for me at least. I know that there are ending defenders. Like, I can't remember if you're one, Mike, but... I, well, I'm ending, ending, of the, of, ending defender of the movie. Well, so. yes. I, I think the ending of the book is, like, unfilmable. Mm-hmm. And the ending of the movie, I don't think that they should have tried to do the book because I think it's unfilmable. But I still don't think they really nail it with the movie ending which is but i think harris sells it i mean some of those great quotes that we always quote are in that big climactic final scene like there's some really bravura acting there but it's just like i don't know it it feels kind of like a whimper when you want the big apocalyptic sort of ending you know yeah yeah what do you think jen what what, the the differences in the endings here you know one's shouting (laughs) <laughs> once Harris just going off the fucking rails which is and never a bad thing never a I bad think. thing yeah oh, you yeah. know don't you see what he's done like um <laughs> I'm but, a fan of the book ending like I like I like both of them you know and but what I think I appreciate the most about the movie version um and you know we okay so we have been in a text thread talking about Holly and y'all were talking about something gleefully nasty that King wrote in Holly and that's how the whole second half of this book feels to Mm -hmm. me it feels just like gleefully destructive and gleefully mean which is part of why i really love it because so many of these characters are just disgusting people or stupid ridiculous people you know um and i love that the movie yeah it's so so playful in how and how ugly and gross it is and it and that's the thing is king he said this when we talked to him but he said it elsewhere too is that you know he intended it for for it to be a bit of a social satire and a bit of a comedy mm-hmm. and he feels like people didn't really get that when it came out and that's why it didn't yeah. really get its due i feel like people get that now yeah i feel like mm-hmm. and you know and i look at we talked about that a lot in under the dome which we feel like has a similar vibe in some ways in terms of yeah. the uh satirical elements so yeah. yeah i i think the and then like the moment i think you're talking about in holly is very similar in that it's funny but also absolutely horrific. And that balance is something King can do really well when he wants to do it. I agree. And I think the movie brings that to life. You know, I think, you know, there are a couple of King movies where the ending, like he just loves to destroy towns, I think, or end his stories Mm -hmm. in fire. And I think so many movies either like really reduce that in scale so that there's no impact to it or change it because they just don't have the budget for it. And I love that. I feel like this movie really goes for that and really kind of commits to destroying everything. And, you know, the final moments aren't that great. But I mean, I feel like the destruction is worth it. You know? Yeah, I, I, the thing is, thematically, I think the ending here makes more sense. I think that giving Pangborn, or in this case, Harris, the agency to kind of shut things down and he being the person to do it and especially just kind of shaking people out of their you know delusions, I think it works 
thematically more effective than say the magic of the ending of the book where for me i get it there's hints of it throughout but it does feel a little kind of left field at the end it's just i i, I get it what they're what he's trying to say at the end there but for me it just i i feel like concretely it does land but it is missing the the sort of explosive punch that the book has i think a large part of it is that the movie itself kind of pulls its punches at times like i i think that and and you certainly see it when you watch like the tv cut because the the tv cut like puts in a lot of the you know the side stories that's that are that are in there but even then you're still missing that that gleeful destruction that you guys were talking about because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't ever really get there like the the closest it ever gets there is you know with Amanda Plummer and like Nettie and and that's like probably the 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 I don't know the most like uh carnivorous moment of the movie and I I kind of mm-hmm. wish we had more of that I mean like even the the decision to spare the kid's life I was going to say mm-hmm. that's the huge moment they pulled back you know they, yeah. They, yeah they they were too they were too scared to kill the kid mhm yeah yeah, and so I think if there was a little, you know, if maybe it was a little bit meaner, it, it probably would have been, it probably would have been more memorable. I mean, we showed this at, oh God, five years ago, at our Castle Rock uh, festival that we did at the Music Box, our first film festival, and I remember sitting and watching it with everyone, and like, you know, it felt, it felt similar to the vibe of Misery. Where, but even lesser so because you know with misery it really does go for the jugular with some of those uh, the visceral core with you you know with the hobbling and all. But I do remember just feeling like I was watching a comedy with everyone mm-hmm. and in the audience because it was my first time actually being able to watch it with an audience. And it did kind of feel like sort of those like a Castle Rock comedy. Which let's be real, it's and I'm not talking about the Castle Rock town. I'm talking about Castle Rock Entertainment, which put out this you know Rob Reiner's joint that put it but this out and. And that vibe is great, and I love that vibe. But I do wish it had—I don't know—some of the the. It was just meaner. If it was if it was meaner, I think it works a little bit better. Um, mm-hmm. so. so what else is on the Blu-ray? Is it just like the theatrical cut and then the TV cut? Yeah. So they have like a commentary with uh, Fraser C. Heston, which was moderated by Scorpion Releasing's Walt Olson, uh, and then oh yeah, Walt. So they, they also have a, a thing called The Devil is in the Details, which is like an interview with W.D. Richter, who did the uh, screenwriting. So, you know, it's got some stuff in there, but I think, you know, and you could definitely go check it out, but you could also check out this interview with Fraser C. Heston because he goes in and he gives him uh, some good insights into this movie. And honestly, when, you know, we do our research here at the Losers Club, I didn't actually find a lot of interviews with him before this. And so it was really exciting to talk to him. God, Randall, we talked to him, what, two years ago at this point? Yeah, it was, it was great. Like, he was yeah. he, he was so, I mean, obviously he's the son of Charlton Heston. He's so charming. Like, mm-hmm. I was I was bedeviled. Bedeviled? <laughs> I like that word. Bewitched. Ooh. Uh, oh. So one last question, though, because I, I do want to ask, like, when it comes to this book, it's still, you know, I think there is a, I think you could consider this somewhat of a definitive adaptation for this in the sense that, it captures a certain era, a certain time. It was only what, like two or three years, two years after the movie, the book had come out. So it was a pretty fast, mm-hmm. you know, fastest mm-hmm. screen adaptation. Would a new one work? No. I, think I it want it as a series. Yes, I would like that, but I, no. And I think like Pet Cemetery and this, I think that's a good comparison because 
this just feels so it feels like it captures exactly what the book is and i think that a new one you know what are you going to do you you they would have to make changes now i would watch a series set in castle rock that spread it out and that added this but didn't try to adapt the book similar to what we see with the under the dome series but no i mean i don't want to see this again i think this is about as perfect as we're going to get from this you know yeah yeah my, I, my, I, go for it randall yeah. i was just going to say i think we can do better i still think the movie's good but it I feel like the message would be a little quaint today because yes. I think mm -hmm. the consumerist sort of, uh, you know, the satire here would feel a little dated if it's done like reverently, but I wouldn't want a non reverent, an irreverent version of this book because I love it. So yeah. I don't know. I feel like any efforts to mod, I feel like there are ways you could modernize it to make it more relevant to today, but I don't know if I want that necessarily. That's, what, that's like my issue. Lose, yeah, you'd lose some of the magic of King. So I guess I don't want it, but I know we talked about this in our film episode and maybe even in the book episode about if it ever were going to happen again, I'd be into like a series adaptation, but I don't know. I feel like it's stuck in that weird place where it's, I don't know. I, it, that satire had a lot of teeth back then in the 90s, but things have just, I don't know, it's like, I feel like he was like sort of satirizing like mall culture, right? Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And now we're like post-mall and it's a very mm -hmm. different landscape. So I don't know. Yeah, it would be like eBay, you know, or yeah. not even eBay. That's too old, I think. I know, yeah. like we're showing our age right now. I know. No, but like Leland Gaunt would show up like with Amazon Prime. And, yes. Like, yeah. today, like, you know? Yeah, exactly. Hey, I got your Keurig cups or whatever, you know, that you, <laughs> you, you fucking well, ordered. Part of the issue too is it's just, this is so perfectly cast. You know, I can't see another adaptation landing the casting as well as this one did and like i don't want to i don't want to see another alan ed harris is always going to be my alan you know well I, the thing is also is it, it kind of goes what you're saying with just the timing like i i you could modernize this sure but also and it's not even in yeah the theme would be antiquated and in, in, you know in in a way to or at least seem quaint today but i also just think that the look of it just wouldn't work like i, I think there's something about the small town charm that Mm -hmm. I mean, this is saying a lot about just America in general, but like when I was driving around recently through some, some small towns in, in California, which is which actually wasn't too far from where they filmed this. This is in, I think it was British Columbia they filmed this. Uh, or, so it was a little bit south of that. But I what I marveled at was the fact that the old, the old small towns that we knew about, which honestly were already sort of fading away by the early 90s, you know, so much of that was like an extension of things that were finally starting to fall apart from the fifties and the sixties. Well, like now we're seeing things that are like falling apart from like the late nineties and early aughts that were already remodeled from that era. And mm -hmm. it's like, you know, if you're not seeing empty office spaces, you're seeing like the same subways or, you know, the same sort of McDonald's that looks like it's dystopian now because for some reason they decided to get rid of, the red and yellow and go for the David Bowie Berlin era black and <laughs> silver and gray metallic or whatever. But I, I just, my point is, is that I, I don't know. I think the, the slice of Americana that we get in this, I just don't think it exists anymore. And like, I, I agree. There's know? been a lot of scholarship mm -hmm. and reporting on this about how there is, there is 
there is it's like sort of the bar rescueification of small towns like the john yeah. catheterization it's everything there is a model for success quote unquote for what um what a town can do to quote unquote revitalize itself and it's turning a lot of small towns into the same Sick having thing. the same template yeah and mm -hmm. It's a big city planning like discussion topic and it's the whole idea of like are small towns losing their character because I think like all the mom and pop this is what you're saying Mike is like a yeah. lot of stuff is closing and the there are like certain things that you know data wise make money and that so every small town basically opens a variation of that same thing yep and yeah there's I think like the small towns that King writes about that are filled with places like you so and so and um Nan's Luncheonette and all that, those places are, you know, those are drying up and we're just getting a lot more places that have like a yard bird, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. 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 And that's what depresses me the most about the world, but we don't have to go into that. Uh, <laughs> that's just my reasoning for why I just don't know if it, it, it can happen. And, and honestly, maybe one of the reasons why it's kind of hard to see so many Stephen King adaptations hit the screen. But speaking of hitting the screen, I think you should absolutely revisit this film. I'm not to not to shill again, but uh, you know you could get it on Amazon. It's the, the the two disc, 4K or Blu-ray. I don't really have a 4K player. I'm not I'm not a big physical media person anymore. I like yeah. I used to be, not anymore. But I did buy I this. I don't know, one. man. I walk into your place and there's a lot of physical media. <laughs> there's a lot of vinyl. There is a lot of vinyl. I will say. I but when it comes to buying Blu-rays, it's very rare. Like I'll buy some Criterion here and then I'll do these special deals and stuff, but. Uh, yeah, you know, go go pick it up yourself if you are a physical media specialist. But hey, us, Kino. Yeah, what you should do though <laughs> is sit back and relax and uh, listen to Fraser. And I don't mean Fraser Crane. I'm talking Fraser C. Aston, uh, who not only talks about evil things, but also uh, his career thereafter, and also his father. So um, enjoy this. And uh, also, if you're looking to revisit this this movie, and you're thinking, God. Nobody I know wants to watch this movie. How can I watch this with friends? Well, you can watch it with us because I mentioned the Barons earlier, www.patreon.com slash the Barons. If you click on that little commentary area, you'll find that uh, the Losers recorded a commentary track, I believe two years ago for this very film. So if you're thinking, hey, I want to watch the original cut, not the TV cut, the original cut, and I want to watch it with the Losers. Well, Justin, Rachel, and I believe Flieger, all three of recorded the commentary track for that. So you could get that too. So you got a lot of needful things to stream. So I'm going to leave you there and enjoy Frazier talking to Randall and I, and uh, we'll be seeing you next week when we head to not Castle Rock, but Chester's Mill, where we're going to be talking about Under the Dome, the TV series, which I've somehow managed to re-binge the, the first season. So we'll we'll cut into all of that. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll be seeing you over long days. And, and pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like 
filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to Factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at Factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. First, there was Stand By Me. Then came Misery. And now, Castle Rock Entertainment and Stephen King are at it again. The devil is in Castle Rock. I know a great deal about the past. He's a good man. He's a con man, Polly, or something worse. There have been two murders and an attempted suicide in this quiet little town in the last 48 hours, and Mr. Leland Gone is at the bottom of it. Ah! He's not a human being. No! Don't you see what he's done? Please kill them all. Let God sort them out. Hello. Hello. Hi. How, How are you, you doing? Pretty good. This is Fraser. Hey, this is Michael Rothman of uh, the Losers Club, and I'm also with Randall Colburn. Uh, hey, nice to meet you. Hey, guys, nice to meet you. It's a pleasure. No, thank you. It's a, the pleasure's all ours. Uh, you know, it's funny because we got an email, you know, asking to talk about the 65th anniversary of the Ten Commandments. And when we saw Fraser Heston, the first thing I thought of, you know, just because we run the Stephen King podcast was like, I wonder if he's game to talk about needful things. And so we oh, were totally- awesome. <laughs> we were totally excited because we literally just finished covering this uh, last year. And it was one of the last uh, recordings that we actually did in person before the pandemic hit. So it was, uh, you know, when I think of needful things is like right at the end before everything started. <laughs> so yeah, That's great. That's terrific. I'm, so, I'm flattered and uh, very pleased. Yeah, no. And no, thanks again. So um, well, I, I just guess we'd start there. You know, is it cool if we start we, we start with needful things and move on to the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So uh, I guess the first question is, you know, what drew you to needful things? And were you a fan of Stephen King growing up? Yes. I mean, I had it's interesting how many generations Stephen's writing, uh, I guess you could say, transcends or extends over. Because uh, I remember, you know, reading The Stand, uh, like so many of us uh, back when I was in college. Um, the guy's an American icon. He's just an amazing man of letters. Uh, and people, I think, tend to kind of take him for granted because he often writes in the horror and fantasy genre. Uh, but as we've seen recently, he's equally adept at things like detective stories uh, mm -hmm. with the Mr. Mercedes. Uh, series and even the hard-boiled uh, uh, paperback detective series he's got out, uh, like uh, I think his latest one is called Leave. Later, um, later. Thank you. Yeah. Later. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And so when uh, Martin Schaefer uh, at uh, Castle Rock Entertainment, who was president of the company and, and an old friend of mine, called me and said he'd like me to direct something for him, obviously I was thrilled. But I was doubly thrilled when he said, guess what? It's a Stephen King novel called Needful Things. Mm. And, and he said, how soon can you, can you come by to pick up the script? I said, what time you got? I'll be there in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And we're, this is pretty much your, your first major feature film, you know, for you know, directing. And was this, and it's an epic undertaking because the story is just huge. Where was your mind at going into production? Was it overwhelming? Was it exciting? Was it a little bit of both? You know, it's it's a little bit, doing that book is a little bit like climbing Mount Everest. You, you have no <laughs> idea what you're getting into when you get there. And by the time you get to Camp 5, I imagine, and I've never climbed Mount Everest, mind you, but I imagine by the time you get to Camp 5 and are heading for the summit, you think, oh my God, what am I doing here? This is so over my head. But, you know, it's it's also a little bit like eating an elephant. Any film, you have to take it one day at a time. You deal with the script, you deal with the locations, you deal with casting. Uh, and, and it, you know, it tends to work itself out. Uh, I think my only regret with that film is that it was such a long novel. You know what? It's almost 700 pages or 700 and a bit. Yeah, depending yeah. On, yeah. it's a beast. You know what version you've got. Uh, and it's got so much character detail that we tried in the early drafts of the script, which were in the 140, 145 page reign, uh, which means roughly a minute a page, right? So that's that's a two hour and... 15 minute movie. Um, and when we finished the film, uh, the distributor who was also Castle Rock Entertainment and uh, I guess Columbia Pictures did the actual distribution of it. Uh, they said, look, we really needed to be under two hours because they have these time limits. And, you know, it, uh, it was very frustrating for me to have to cut out that 15 or 20 minutes of mm -hmm. film the initial theatrical version uh and we had to cut out entire characters lisa blount wonderful actress mm -hmm. uh um was entirely cut out except for i think only one line um and because that book is all about cross wiring it's about the misunderstandings that happen between four different groups of people who and then that's that's extrapolated over an entire town and everybody gets crosswired. So if you cut one out, you, you have to cut a whole series of things out. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very tightly plotted. So I think that's my one disappointment with the film is that we had to, for reasons of, of time, not economy, uh, we had to cut it down a lot more than I would have liked. It might've made a better miniseries, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Carrie and uh, it writer Lawrence D. Cohen originally penned a draft prior to W.D. Richter. Did you get to read that script as well? You know, no, I was aware of that, but I didn't really see any need and they didn't uh, they didn't proffer it to me. So I just worked with a draft I was given. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a little uncredited work on on the script. I probably shouldn't be admitting that. Um, but uh, uh, I thought uh, I thought uh, uh, Richter did a great job on on adapting a very complex and you know difficult, lengthy uh, novel to uh, to bring to the screen. Um, and and I think you know the other thing we have to credit is the cast. Mm -hmm. uh, what a great cast! Max oh, von yeah. Ed Harris, Bonnie Bedelia, uh, Amanda Plummer, J.T. Walsh. These are pros. These guys yeah. are awesome i mean look at the the body of their work and it was especially with max and ed i mean they're they're such dedicated artists uh rest his soul we lost max uh, last year mm -hmm. but what a gentleman what a pro what a great guy to work with 
what kind of was the process that went into the TV cut that happened? Because there was the extended cut that aired, I believe, on TBS. Um, was there ever a plan for like a proper release for that? You know, uh, not a theatrical release. No, I was approached again by Castle Rock to do the extended version. And mm. basically what it meant is we could put everything back in that we cut out. And mm. when you're a young director, you, you know, you love things like wonders. You love those long, slow zoom ins or track in shots. You try to get a whole scene in one shot. And then you think, oh, I don't need to cover this scene with close-ups. Well, if you haven't got the close-ups, you can't shorten the scene, right? It's all or nothing, isn't it? I guess you yeah. could cut it off at the end, which we did on a couple of occasions. So all those little arty directory things, which <laughs> frankly are probably not such a great idea anyway, because all they do is call attention to the director and say, hey, look at me, isn't this cool? I have all these toys <laughs> like dollies and, and cranes. Uh, and, you know, in, in some ways, I would love to be able to do a sort of definitive theatrical length, but director's cut version of that film, uh, mm. which would be somewhere in between the two. I think the TBS version was about three hours. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. cut two halves, if I'm not mistaken, two parts. Uh, and and my director's cut was probably two hours long, maybe, maybe 205, something like that. Um, so somewhere in between there, there's a there's a compromise. Yeah. Well um, with Stephen with Stephen oh, King being so big now i mean has there been any uh tapping on the shoulder to be like look we've got a lot here <laughs> this hasn't really been out there in public other than you know the occasional screening on tbs or tnt let's get something out there that's an official release has there ever been any discussions on that end no no um and you know probably the game's not worth the candle there from an economic mm -hmm. standpoint from the studio's perspective uh, I, you know, I would say let's remake it for Netflix oh, and, yeah. and, do yeah. it in, you know, do it in three parts or four parts. Yeah. I mean, especially with Castle Rock being the show for Hulu, I think a lot of fans were actually waiting for the next season to be some sort of adaptation or loose adaptation of Needful Things. Cause you're right. I mean, it, it's so, it just screams for miniseries. Cause I, I just can't even imagine just I mean, even just the format itself of the items that you get in the store, like that's an episode. I mean, each one is- Well, sure. Episode, so, yeah, you're you absolutely know? right. And and every time somebody new comes into the store, the store has changed for their yep. perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the the uh, the priest who comes in and is, is affronted by all the sexual objects. Um, and, and you have uh, the football player comes in and there's all the sports memorabilia, things like yeah. that. It yeah. was pretty clever. Yeah. Um, and obviously all those characters could be delved into a lot more. I mean, look at, you know, in the same genre and clearly with a, a, a big nod to Stephen King, look at Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not the similarity of the title. They use the exact same font in, in the title <laughs> of the of the picture of the series that we used for Needful Things. Um, and obviously they're, you know, they're going back to that sort of 80s, 90s uh uh, kind of horror genre that, that Stephen King so, you know, boldly represents. 
Yeah. One of the things I think you captured so well in Needful Things was the main setting. Uh, and that's so quintessential King, you know? So had you read like the Castle Rock books? Because uh, there's, you know, aside from Needful Things, there's, you know, several other books that take place there. But uh, was that something that you were familiar with, like sort of uh, King's depiction of the town as a whole? And how did you sort of capture that feel? Sure. Well, remember, Castle Rock Entertainment was named after that, that very mm -hmm. same town, which went all the way back to Stand By Me, directed yeah. by Rob Reiner, who was partners with uh, Martin Schaefer and Andy Scheinman, who formed Castle Rock Entertainment. Uh, so there was a lot of DNA going back and forth there. Uh, and at first we thought about Maine. And then I said, look, you know, I've I've worked in British Columbia before. I made a film called Motherload there with my dad back mm. in the early 80s. My wife is Canadian and I lived in Vancouver for many years. Oh, perfect. And I said, why don't we go have a look at some of that craggy forested coastline, find a little town that we can sort of walk into and own for two months and build the church, build the Needful Things store uh, from scratch and obviously do the interiors in you know, one of the sound stages in Vancouver. So that worked out really well. It was still a good bargain uh, to film in Vancouver as it, it still is today. So that again was kind of part of my heritage uh, that I was able to bring to the film. And well, like the film is, is just all over, you know, I mean, obviously just because that's just how the setting and the story takes place. But, um, and you mentioned, you know, being able to kind of own this town. Do, do you recall, um, which scenes were particularly difficult to shoot and how much would you say was actually built for the movie versus like actual just real locations that you're able to kind of adopt your for your, the, the film the the big catholic church we built from scratch the wow. uh and needful things exterior we built from scratch mm. the interior we did on a sound stage a lot of other stuff like the sheriff's office uh, the barn where the turkey farmers live, that was a real barn. That was way out near Mission, British Columbia, <laughs> east of Vancouver. And it fell down. It looked like it was going to fall down. And it finally did before we finished it. We had to prop it back up. Uh, but that little sway back barn with a hayloft and all that weird looking sort of almost Andrew Wyeth country uh, that actually exists out there east of, uh, of Vancouver. Wow. Yeah, I mean, everything looks so lived in. I think that's one of the big selling points, too, is that, you know, we watch. I remember when we were watching it, you know, we my girlfriend and I really wanted to go to Maine. And it was funny because I didn't, you know, I hadn't looked at the trivia ahead of time. So I just figured, you know, oh, yeah, maybe they shot it in Maine. And the the whole film, we're just like, God, we got to book this trip. We got to get there. I mean, look at this. This is gorgeous. It's it's autumn <laughs> in Maine. And then we we're like, oh, of course, it's Vancouver, which Vancouver, is just, sorry. just the best. It's just, but it's such a great location for it. I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, like the X-Files when it shot in Vancouver was just, it was never the same when it left. And um, Supernatural for 15 seasons just made it so that they could pretty much yep. make every state in Vancouver. There's something about that area where you literally could just, reconfigure it to just fit any sort of terrain um it, it, it does feel like a spoils worth of stuff that you can get out there um, well my my next project uh is uh, based on a book i wrote with my writing partner heather mcadams uh and that's set up in that same territory it's called desolation sound it's oh, based yeah. on the true story of the 
myths of the severed human feet that keep washing up in the shores of British Columbia. Oh, wow. And Interesting. Someday we can do a whole nother podcast on that subject, but that's a true <laughs> story. You can Google it. I think there are 19 or 20 of them. By now, they kept, we kept having to change the number every time wow. we did a draft of the book. And now we're developing it with my son, Jack Heston, who's a producer, uh, as a uh, hopefully as a TV series. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very much in that kind of dark, rainy, you know, the, the out of doors, 10 minutes from Vancouver, you're in howling wilderness, right? If you step off the road and you walk 10 feet, you can get lost in that forest and the dripping conifers and the, the deep dark fjords and the glacial inlets and the islands, the, uh, you know, empty islands. It's just, it's such a wonderful setting for any sort of dark, grim, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, mystery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause you look back and just think of all the, I mean, some of my favorite pieces of pop culture are filmed around that area and especially, you know, just in the Pacific Northwest as well. And, and then, yeah, you do look at the history and you're like, well, I guess it does make sense why we have some most disturbing things that have ever happened <laughs> with humanity around <laughs> this area. Um, but it is so, there is just a magic to it. I, I always think of, um, you know, like David Lynch talking about Twin Peaks and shooting there. And, you know, what he loves about that area is that, you know, his favorite noise is the wind. And there's just a spoils worth of just all that, the, all the trees and the, the Douglas firs being able to kind of blow back and give you this choir of noise that is just unbelievable. And so I've just been, I've been jonesing to go there. I've been, I, I, I would kill to live up there, but yeah. That's a great image, by the way. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, we we filmed Alaska there as well, also yeah. for Castle Rock, a much happier, brighter, sunnier uh, <laughs> uh, story, more yeah. of a kid's story. And, uh, and uh, you know, it doubled great for Alaska. And we actually were able to dovetail second unit shot on the glaciers up on Mount McKinley on Denali uh, with, with uh, glaciers at the top of the Pem Pemberton Ice Cap just outside Whistler, where we go skiing every year. So oh, wow. there, there's so much great access there. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, to go back to the dark and dripping sort of world, uh, there's actually a genre called Pacific Northwest Noir or Northwest Noir. Yeah. Uh, that makes and, sense. and that's what, you know, that's what our uh, Desolation Sound is uh, is very much in the middle of. And even though Needful Things was set in Maine, it, it sort of become Northwest Noir because of where we shot it. Yeah. Yeah. So how um how involved was uh, Stephen King in the production? Did he ever visit the set? No, sadly, he did not. I, I was hoping he would come. I met him a couple of times during pre-production at Castle Rock. And, and the first time I walked into, I met him, I just happened to walk into Martin Schaefer's office, president of Castle Rock, and to talk about something. And there was this kind of unprepossessing looking guy uh, <laughs> with a shock of black hair over his eyes, wearing a sweatshirt and tennis shoes, sitting in the corner. <laughs> And, and I went, hi, my name's Fraser. And he goes, oh, my name's Stephen King. And I went, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was the coolest guy. I mean, he couldn't have been more supportive. Uh, and he had very nice things to say uh, about the film afterwards, which sort of astounded me because I'm sure I, I, I've only written one novel, but I'm sure even if I get to make that novel, it'll probably hate the, uh, the adaptation. <laughs> well, I... Yeah, I, I, I I, I did want to ask about that because I one of the things I'm obsessed with Castle Rock Entertainment. I, I have a 
One of the things I managed to pick up I, for a while, I was scouring uh, eBay for a good like three years, trying to find like any crew stuff that that I could you know get. And I finally last year got a hat that was uh it was during the pandemic, so I was very my girlfriend was just like, do you really want to wear someone's hat like during the pandemic? Like this is what you're gonna do? And I was like, I got <laughs> I, I finally found this hat. I'm gonna wear it. So it's been my like go to hat. And I've always wondered, like, what was the vibe like working for Castle Rock? And because, you know, obviously they get the namesake from the Stephen King books, but so many of their adaptations there, you can tell there's a heart and, and, and a love and a depth to them that maybe, you know, a lot of the other adaptations didn't have because, you know, maybe there wasn't that connective tissue. But yeah, what was it like working for them? Well, they were some of the nicest guys in Hollywood. Uh, I went to school with Martin Schaefer. He's still a very close friend of mine. We went to Harvard Westlake School, then just Harvard School, private school here in L.A. Um, and he was a big tennis player. He played with my dad all the time. They used to play tennis, uh, charity tennis circuits around the country. And I sometimes pitched in with that. So we were old chumps and we, we got along great. He's a real straight shooter, Martin. And, you know, his partners there, Rob Reiner, yeah. Andy Scheinman, uh, Alan Horn, who went on to run Warner Brothers and now Disney, uh, they're equally stand-up guys. And they're the kind of guys that they say, okay, that's it. You got to pull a plug in helicopters. And you go, listen, I need three more days of helicopter time. And here's the reason why. And I'm standing on top of a glacier with a sap. <laughs> and they go, okay, tell me. And you tell them and they go, okay, you can have three days, right? Their ego, so un-Hollywood of them, was not attached to their decisions. And they would make mistakes and they would say, okay, we screwed up. You have to go back and redo that scene because you were right. We were wrong. Now go fix it. I go, oh, okay. And, <laughs> and the weird thing is that starts at the top and works down because then I would find, wait a second, I've made a mistake. I don't like this scene. This isn't right. I need to come back tomorrow and reshoot it. And they go, okay, do it. Take the extra day. Cheaper now than to come back three months from now when you're in post-production and set everything up again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they would also do things like they would wait until the entire picture was finished. The sound was done, colorizing, everything. everything's finished. You've got a, a preview print out there, an answer print. And people go, I can't hear the dialogue during the music. The music's too loud. And I go, oh, damn it. And I think, well, there's nothing we can do. It's locked, right? And, and Castle Rock would go, no, go back and take five days and just redo the music. You have the stems. All you got to do is bring the music track down a notch. Yeah. And you'll be able to hear the dialogue. And good for them. I mean, I think we'd already been in like film festivals in France and things with it. Oh, that wow. So that's so rare in Hollywood. It's, they have a very uncorporate mentality of that is a concept yeah well i mean their their slate you know certainly speaks to that that uh that strive for art you know i mean yeah it's it's just I mean, a great and, slate. and also you know it was a little intimidating for me because i'd known rob reiner most of my life because he's a, again a big tennis player he used to come up to my dad's house um uh up on the top of Coldwater canyon where he kind of had an open tennis uh arrangement every weekend and but Rob would, get, he's very animated, Rob. You know, he's very excited. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he would get in a meeting and he would start shouting about stuff. And I think, Jesus, here's my boss yelling at me. <laughs> but I couldn't help myself. And at one point, I just interrupted him and I said, Rob, Rob, wait a second. I said, You're my boss. If you tell me, Fraser, you have to do this this way, I'll just do it. 
It's not the end of the world. It's only a movie. But if you're trying to convince me, then shouting is not going to succeed. <laughs> like the whole world fell silent and all the assistants and junior execs went, oh my God, now he's going to get fired. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to get fired. And Rob goes, God damn it. You're absolutely right. <laughs> God, I love him. I love him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Um, so we were reflecting, we were watching the movie, uh, how Leland Gaunt kind of seems like a really great role for your father. And we were, and you guys had worked together in 1990 on Treasure Island. Did you actually, did you ever approach him for the role? You know, oddly enough, I didn't. Um, we did approach him for uh, the role of the kind of evil poacher in Alaska, which we did oh, wow. rock right after uh, Needful Link. So we certainly weren't avoiding him, but I think Max was the ideal piece of casting for that. He was just, Perfect. And I had met Max on the set of The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I should mention for your listeners that my father was Charlton Heston. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and he played John the Baptist in The Greatest Story Ever Told and uh, baptized uh, Max von Sydow, who played Jesus Christ. And I remember meeting him in the bottom of the Colorado River Gorge <laughs> in the early 60s uh, and hadn't seen him since and phoned him up. Uh, he knew about the book and he knew we were interested in him. And I phoned him up and I said, Max, you may remember. He goes, no, I remember you very well, Fraser. You were in the Colorado River and, and you had a broken <laughs> arm. I had my arm in a cast, he remembered everything. And, and I flew, I said, look, the best way to do this is in person. Can I get on the next plane and, and come and meet you? And he said, sure, Castle Rock gave me a ticket. I flew to Stockholm the next day. Wow, wow. Fact, I, think I, I think I left that night. And then spent the night in Stockholm and went out to the island where he lived in the middle of the Baltic Sea. And there was a medieval festival going on. And I'm walking around thinking, wait a minute, what is this the town time forgot? Yeah, right? The Game of Thrones here or something. Um, so I met him and he, you know, he couldn't have been nicer. And we came up together with this idea of him playing it as a sort of kindly European grandfather. Mm, or somebody's yeah. uncle you know he's polite he's affable he's funny um and and he knows how to get to people right mm -hmm. and that was the key to basically to his concept of the devil yeah 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 i mean he's so epic i mean that's the thing it's just it's he is just perfect in that, that and that's why when we were debating it last year i believe we were like well who i mean that is that would be hell of a casting uh rival right there you know uh the you know the two because they you know they both come from epic so it's just uh you know one or the other but i love i love that um i love that story but um but yeah in terms That's of great. you know nowadays it's so easy to look back in hindsight and go well i guess we could have made some sort of cinematic world or you know connected the dots and you know with the dark half coming out so soon to this and both featuring alan pangborn i did always wonder if there was any discussions and like basically saying well michael rooker just played this role and alan pay as alan pangborn what if we got him again to reprise the role in this and it could be kind of like a pseudo sequel which seems to be the mo nowadays like that's like with all the cinematic universes that's just the all the rage was that ever on the table, you know, in the early development stage to be like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can kind of. Wasn't, wasn't really discussed. Uh, I, th there may have been some, some meetings about it that I don't remember, but, but again, I sort of had a clean slate 
uh, in in directing the film and in casting. And and again, to Castle Rock's credit, they they said, okay, who are your ideas? And I think I just seen Ed in something. I forgot what it was. Uh, he's done so many wonderful films. And by the way, still going strong. Yeah, the guys the guys just amazing. Oh, yeah. Just he's got so much energy. And and you know he's a real artist, and he expects the same from you. He takes it seriously, and uh, you know he does his best in every scene and every moment of every scene, uh, which is wonderful. There's another uh, character we've already discussed this the script, and that you you know you had seen it, and uh, but the character Ace Merrill is a big part of the book, but we don't see him at all in the film, which, you know, I think when you do think about things that you could excise from the book, where it wouldn't alter the story that much, it makes total sense that Ace Merrill would be excised. But was there ever, ever like any version of the script or any discussion about or or where he was involved in the actual film? Not in the versions that I saw, not Mm -hmm. in the versions, maybe in the earlier drafts, who knows? Uh, but again, clearly, uh, you know, th- th- there's so many wonderful things in the book. And it's, you know, talk about killing your babies. Yeah. You got to do it eventually. And and th- th- there's also saying that if you're too much in love with something, it should probably be shortened, you know, or cut out entirely. If you're absolutely crazy about it. Right. Then, then maybe you should look at it w- with a very, you know, critical eye. Uh, mm-hmm. Max used to do an interesting thing. He would call me on the weekend, God bless him, not in the middle of shooting. And he would say, Kent Fraser, can we have lunch tomorrow? <laughs> and and I go, of course, Max, yes. I would be very happy to have lunch with my one of my leading men. And and he would have lines in the book highlighted in, with, with post-its and a little yellow highlighter and, and a notebook with penciled notes. And he would then cross-reference that with the script and you know he'd want to change maybe one line or something could we use this line or could we change this line or could I delete this and say that instead and it was so meticulous and professional and what a pleasure to be able to spend a couple hours alone with Max Moncito yeah Uh, and and also to do it you know so often you're accosted by actors on the set just after you light the scene and you have the marks on the floor and you're just about ready to go and they go, I don't think, I, I don't understand why I'm in this scene. What am <laughs> yeah. I here for? And you say, well, fear right now would be a big motivator. For you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, one last question about Needful Things. Um, it's the ending of the book is so like strange and it has this whole like magic trick and there's actual magic and Leland Gaunt turns into, you know, a man who drives a little carriage and a little <laughs> demon. And it's so strange. And very so polarizing. It, it make, it's a very yes. polarizing ending. In so it makes sense that the, the movie would go for a more grounded, uh, simpler and more grounded ending. Um, was there any kind of debate about how to approach that? Or was that sort of the ending that was in the script when you received it? No, that was basically the way we got it. We mm-hmm. looked at an additional ending that we were going to shoot in the back lot of uh, uh, of uh, Paramount, I think. Uh, they have a great New York street. And I said, what if we, because there was some discussion about, is it still a little vague? You know, should we see mm-hmm. his next victim and it's going to be New York City? And we're uh. going to start with him opening and the little bell tings mm. and he opens the shop on a back street in, in New York someplace, and then you pull out 
and uh, Frank Sinatra starts singing Start Spreading the News. And, <laughs> And uh, it's New York, but we ultimately we decided we even wrote that scene, and we ultimately decided again the game wasn't worth the candle for that one. Yeah, yeah. I think it was smart. I mean, I, I, that ending is I could just literally visualize it right now in my head. Um, I could totally see it, but I, I actually I really do love the ending of the movie um, because oh, I, I was I was one of the ones on the side of our book episode that was like. I think it makes more sense to have this the shouting match and like in the streets and everyone kind of just sobering up and being like, yeah, what, what the hell am I doing right now? Um, so I yeah, and Alan Pangborn turns into Jimmy Stewart. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, and I like that. I I, I really do like that because I think it kind of it just feels a little bit more grounded and realistic than Alan Pangborn, a sheriff, being like, hey, I got all these magic tricks in my back pocket. I want to use that. It doesn't work for me, but um, so I like I like the ending on there. Um, but let's talk about the 10 commandments, you know, cause this is, it's in 4k for the first time. And I wanted yeah. to, you know, how were you involved in its recent transfer? Well, I did it all on my laptop actually. No, um, <laughs> like, I'm uh, sitting at Starbucks. Just I, working was, on it. <laughs> I was approached, uh, you know, they did it a couple of years ago and I was approached by my pals at Paramount. And they said, look, would you like to come see this thing? We've just finished this amazing restoration and we've even done a film transfer so we can project it or, or maybe it was digitally projected. I can't remember on our big screen here at the big screening room in Paramount, which is one of the best screening rooms in town. And would you be willing to give a little talk beforehand? So I came out and I did my little talk about me being the baby Moses and all of the stuff, which we'll get to in a second. But <laughs> Uh, and then I thought, well, I'll just for politeness, I'll sit in a corner and then I'll duck out the back exit after the first reel. And I couldn't get up from my chair. I stayed for the whole, what is it, three hours, something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I was glued to my chair. I, it just, you know, it is definitely a DeMille epic. It's not a William Wyler epic. It's not a Martin Scorsese epic. You know, it's not Ridley Scott. It is Cecil B. DeMille. It is yeah. that pre 19. 60 kind of era um and it was shot well the year i was born 55 <laughs> so so it was definitely something that was kind of exciting for me that they took the trouble and spent the money to restore it and in those days uh i think they actually restored it at a higher resolution than 4k and only now is 4k become consumer accessible mm -hmm. so it makes sense to come out with a version for for that yeah, and and accessible is an interesting. I, I, the keyword there for, for me on the next question, just because I, you know, was thinking back, you know, while watching it, and I, you know, you mentioned Ridley Scott, and he's certainly a filmmaker who's brought a lot of uh, the religious epics onto the big screen in recent memory. But you know, do you think we'll ever get back to another era where we actually see religious epics as like mainstream blockbuster productions? Because it, it just, you know, there was so many of them around this time. And there's certainly been peppered throughout, you know, recent history, but not to the level that they were at this time, you know, and I'm wondering why that is. Well, I, I think I think in part, you know, and there are exceptions like they remade Ben-Hur mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, with my buddy Jack Houston, who I thought was wonderful. Actually, yeah. I thought he did a great job. Uh, I think the film fell a little short, uh, but that was mainly a script problem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's hard it's hard to go up against the classic. I mean, I, I certainly hope they never remake Casablanca. 
Yeah, no. Um, oh God. Or Citizen Kane. <laughs> um, uh, in a way, they sort of did remake uh, Citizen Kane this year with Mank. I was yeah, going to say, yeah, um, that's like it's the closest they'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, they got the nod anyway. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, see that'd happens. be the, the irony. See if they that. walk home with a little gold man. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's a good question. I think to a certain degree, politics has replaced religion. In, in in the world of fanaticism today mm, and mm. and there was a time when you could get really really hot under the collar about what particular sect of of a, of a given subset of baptism you, you you were in the christian religion say mm -hmm. and and nowadays i think i think you know that has sort of been replaced by this kind of fanatical conviction in whatever form of politics you believe in um and i i think in terms of epics though if you just take the word religion out of it i think there's always room for epics i mean yeah. the, the marvel movies are epics. yeah and, oh totally. totally you know epics are about scale are about not only the size of the screen but but the size of the story you're fitting into it and and at the time demille was the master of that um yeah. and i think that's why that movie still stands up it still holds water uh, even though the dialogue's a little hokey, you know, you have, oh, Moses, you, Moses, you. Yeah. Uh, and you've got Eddie Robinson, you, you know, Moses, listen, Moses, see here. And stuff like that. But that's part of what makes it great, you know, and and there's, you know, a whole new generation that probably hasn't seen it. So the, the, they're going to get a chance now. Oh, totally. Totally. Well, you had mentioned that you do get to play the infant Moses. And I, you know, I was, and I was thinking, like, if I was, the infant Moses growing up, you know, that would definitely be a running joke in my family. Like they would just, you know, that would be my nickname. And I wondered if that was <laughs> something that happened with you or, you know, that if, if that was ever something that they threw around in your family. And then also, when did you finally get to see it? Like, did, did you grow up knowing you were in this movie or did they kind of reveal later on being like, guess what? You were, uh, you were baby Moses. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's like saying, well, when did I know that my dad was a, a famous movie star, yeah. which by is a word he hated. He saw himself as, a, as an actor, as a serious actor. Um, I think it was part of my DNA from as long as I can remember. The first telegram my mom got when I was born, she opened it up and it said, congratulations, he's got the part, love CB. Of course, it was mm -hmm. from Cecil B. DeMille, whom they always called Mr. DeMille, by the way, never CB. Uh, and Mr. DeMille had offered me the part before I was born. Uh, <laughs> and I thought I was brilliant. And uh, I'm amazed they didn't give me first billing. I, I never forgave my dad for that. Because <laughs> uh, you start it all. I mean, it literally starts with you. So, you know. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, it it's... does. Yeah, I appear first. If they did it in order of appearance, I would have been up there yeah yeah i needed a better agent i guess <laughs> do you have any strong memories of uh you know being on set for some of his other iconic films like planet of the apes for example anything like that oh sure and and my fondest memory of planet of the apes was linda harrison's uh, uh coconut fiber bikini which was more fair <laughs> than substance um but that was exciting you know watching the apes and everything and and uh Ben-Hur, of course, was an early memory yeah. for me being on the set. And dad would say, Frey, you know, I'd be sitting in a corner on an Apple box, just watching, just wrapped with attention. I just loved it. It was so exciting. And he would say, if you're tired or you're bored, I can get a car to take you home. 
And I said, no, daddy, I just want to stay here and watch more movies being made. Yeah. And I, I guess it's it's no coincidence, although I didn't start out to be a filmmaker, but it's no coincidence. And eventually I sort of fell back into it. It's kind of like the mafia. The only way to get out of it is to die out. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, especially did, at that level, you know, and yeah, did well, um, it can go wrong, too. You know, I'm glad I didn't try to be an actor. Actually, I think mom and dad you know, put some sense into me in that. I, I don't remember ever wanting to be an actor, but they certainly said, look, it's it's very tough uh, uh, act to follow if your father's a, a well-known actor. Obviously, yeah. Michael Douglas is an exception and there are others. But uh, I'm glad that, you know, I kind of got to it through the back door, through writing. I, I was studying marine biology at UC San Diego and suddenly had this sort of Damascene moment and decided I want to be a writer, not a scientist. Yeah. switched to English Lit at UCLA, went through that whole process, and then started writing uh, outlines for novels. And again, my buddies, Martin Schaefer and Andy Scheinman came to me. They'd read uh, 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 an outline for a novel I'd written called The Mountain Men. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they said, look, we think we can make this. Uh, let's get your dad to, to be in it and we'll take it to Columbia. And they knew uh, Martin Ransomhoff, a big producer of Columbia. And that picture got made. And I went, wow, this is an easy business. I'll just do this. I don't have to write novels. <laughs> a little, and that was the beginning of the whole nightmare. Yeah. Uh, some, uh, golly, how many years ago was that? 40 some odd years ago. Yeah. Did he watch his own films? You know, did the family ever sit, you know, get together and watch the films? Or by then, you know, where it was it mostly like, all right, we, we've seen we did, but only occasionally. He didn't like to screen his own films for his friends. He would, had a screening room and we had a, uh, a screening maybe once every couple of weeks. We'd invite a few close friends who, by the way, most of them weren't in the film business. His best friend was a cement contractor. Um, and But he also knew producers and writers and stuntmen. My mentor in the outdoor world was a guy named Joe Canut, who drove the chariot in Ben-Hur when my dad wasn't driving it. Mm. Um, and, you know, taught me to fish and hunt and climb mountains and sail and scuba dive and fly airplanes and all that stuff that I was fascinated with. Um, and, you know, dad was, was, he saw himself as this kind of shy kid from the backwoods of Michigan who liked to wear tights and wave swords around and put on funny noses. <laughs> and he said he couldn't believe that people paid him to do it. They thought that was the coolest thing. And he knew what a privilege it was. He knew how lucky he was, right? He knew how many thousands of equally talented, maybe more talented, kids from the backwoods of any state you care to name didn't become famous movie stars or didn't even weren't even able to make a living in, in the acting business. Um, so he always said he'd do it for free if somebody would feed his kids. And, and I said, but what about college, dad? <laughs> I mean, it's I was thinking about the idea of, of having Charlton Heston <laughs> As my father, because I, I mean, my my dad, I've, everyone always says, you know, oh, you look like Al Pacino. And certainly when he would get angry, he'd look like Scarface. And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when your dad would get angry or if if if, if or, or even, you know, he's just trying to be stern. Would it would it ever kind of feel a lot like the epics that he's in the movie where you're like, OK, I'm, I'm good. This <laughs> well, he did have what I call the dark gray voice. Yeah, <laughs> and we, we didn't want to hear the dark gray voice. Um, yeah. uh, there was an incident that he told me about later, but I believe it actually happened. Well, I know for sure it happened. Uh, 
when I was in the basket on Ten Commandments, the basket leaked. And I guess they were so uh, fanatical about their their historical accuracy, they, they you know, patched uh, it with pitch or tar or something. And, and it actually leaked and began to sink. And he went in there and grabbed me in the, in the tank at Paramount. And there was a social worker on the set, a, uh -huh. a nurse basically, who stepped in and said, oh no, Mr. Heston, I'm the only one who can hold the child by law <laughs> while he's on the set. And she grabbed me and dad just looked at her and very quietly, but with the force of Moses behind it, said, give me that baby. <laughs> and she did. Oh, I love it. Uh, I love it. Well, um, as we wrap up here, uh, we'd love to just hear, like, you know, from, from your perspective, having, you know, known him, obviously, your whole life and seen probably the majority of his films, uh, what would you consider your father's best performance? You know, that's a great question. I think of the big epics, you got to put Ten Commandments at the top. Ben-Hur obviously won the Academy Award for, uh, you've got to put that at the top. And by the way, I've still got the Oscar sitting on my desk. Wow. Uh, next nice. to his picture. Yeah. And and I think other smaller films like Touch of Evil, uh, where he plays a Mexican with a, a silly mustache and a bad suit. <laughs> something you would, you would never do today. No, 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 no. Acceptable <laughs> those days. Um, and uh, Planet of the Apes, where he plays kind of a son of a gun. You know, he mm -hmm. plays really sort of a bastard. And and even My Treasure Island, uh, which was the first film I directed for uh, Ted Turner at TNT. Um, I'm very proud of that film. We also had a young actor you might have heard of named Christian Bale. Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. Playing uh, Jim Hawkins, uh, who also did a great job for us at the age of 16, no less. Yeah. Yes. Um, so some of his smaller films, I think, are equally interesting. And he was very proud of them uh, to go with the big epics and the big budget, you know, Planet of the Apes level films. Yeah. 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 And I, I always what I always marveled at was just how he was able to just steal even just the smallest things. You know, we, we just reviewed uh, In the Mouth of Madness uh, a few weeks ago, and we were just like, wow, he's in this for like three minutes and just runs away <laughs> with it. It's unreal. I mean, it's just like, I mean, imagine everyone shooting there and probably including John Carpenter himself was just like, you know what, Charlton, just go with it. <laughs> You're just going to go with it. Um, well, and he would, he gave everything, you know, 110%, whether it was, uh, you know, an episode of Friends yeah. where one of the, one of the main characters uh, ends up stealing his shower for five minutes on a set. Um, or, or, you know, all the way to True Lies. Uh, yeah. Here, oh, yeah. his career spans from C.B. DeMille to James Cameron, yeah. another epic director. That's yeah. pretty impressive, you know. And he kept kind of reinventing himself, uh, not really consciously, but just in terms of doing different parts. And, you know, he turned to the sci-fi genre for a while. Mm -hmm. Some of his smaller films, like the, the movie based on I Am Legend, uh, The Omega Man. Yeah, uh, yeah. The first making of uh, I Am Legend that people have maybe forgotten about. Uh, it was a pretty interesting film. And by the way, his work in civil rights, you know, he marched to the steps of the Washington, of the Lincoln Memorial with Dr. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King in the March on Washington. Yeah. And he had a, a interracial uh, love story in uh, Omega Man. And yeah. it was mainly due to his, his efforts uh, at inclusiveness in the Screen Actors Guild, of which he was also president for three terms. 
Nice. Yeah. Just incredible. And just a transformative legend for, for, for a variety of reasons. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to, to talk to us, uh, you know, about him. And then also, of course, you know, Stephen King and Needful Things. And this has just been such a great chat. And I can't thank you enough, Mr. Essen. So. Yeah, thank you so much. This was lovely. Well, first of all, call me Fraser. And it was <laughs> it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You guys are awesome. Let's do it again soon. Yeah. Sounds great. Have a great one. <laughs> okay, cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.